Hey now, we are getting over and I am the Silver King, Adam Silverstein, here to lead you through these hard times with the latest WWE edition of your favorite professional wrestling podcast. That's right. Getting over is back once again. and We are here to break down everything that happened in the world of WWE over the last week. Of course, we will be talking about SmackDown and Monday Night Raw but we will also be discussing the completion of WWE's merger with Endeavor, a new company named TKO Group Holdings. There is a ton to discuss from that, a ton to talk about in the world of WWE, and we are bringing it all to you right now on this episode. But I would be remiss if I began any episode of the Getting Over Wrestling podcast without a reminder that this show is all about So please, folks, stop being marks for yourselves and go back to being a mark for me. That's right. Go back to being marks for the Silver King, Adam Silverstein, Vintage Chris Vanini and the Getting Over Wrestling podcast. Please visit Apple Podcasts and Spotify. Leave five star ratings on Apple. Take a little extra time and leave a five star written review, because if you do, we will read it live right here on the show. And wouldn't you know it? We got not one, not two but three new five-star reviews on Apple Podcasts last week. They always mean a lot to us. So as I said, we're going to read them right here. First one, best podcast from Puck Masta Funk, five stars. Not just the best wrestling podcast, but the best podcast full stop. I don't know that much more needs to be said. Thank you, Puck Masta Funk. We also got big acknowledgement right here from Bill Vamos. He says five stars, obviously. Shut the F up and let me talk for a minute. Good callback. I've been a fan since the ITC days, and I look forward to every episode, especially the post-show analysis. I'm convinced Chris should have a Mike's Hard Lemonade sponsorship at this point, but I digress. (laughs) I'll actually listen to the post-show pods first, then decide whether to order the AEW pay-per-view or watch the WWE PLE on replay, depending on your grades and opinions. Just wanted to say thanks for all the entertainment over the years, and I hope this show is around for a long time. Phil from Oceanside, California. So it says Phil, it says Bill. I don't know what your name is, but thank you very much. And we do appreciate that acknowledgement. And lastly, the best professional wrestling podcast from Fuggin, that's three G's, Peacock, three exclamation points, five stars. When I first decided to find a podcast about wrestling, I auditioned several of them. I can say with confidence that this is the best podcast on the subject. If you don't have time to watch every show and want to know what matches shows, are worth your time. This is the only source you will ever need. Their opinions and insights on the wrestling news of the day are always well-reasoned and thought-provoking, and the occasional interviews with various wrestling personalities are always a treat. So go ahead, quit being marks for yourselves, and go back to being marks for the Silver King and Vintage Chris Vanini and the Getting Over Wrestling Podcast. So, Fuggin Peacock, Bill Vamos or Phil from Oceanside, California, and Puck Masta. Fuck, we only got one thing left to say. We acknowledge you. Acknowledge. Acknowledge. Big acknowledgement right there. Acknowledge. Chris, you got anything to say about those wonderful five-star reviews? Yeah, really appreciate hearing that. Thanks for everybody for for doing those. And to the point about listening to the the Instant Analysis podcast before deciding to buy the pay-per-view, we've heard from a number of people who who do that. So that's kind of why we do the podcasts in that format where we – describe the matches, break some stuff down, because not everybody listening to the podcast watched the previous show. So 
Uh, it's a way to keep people updated, even if you missed a show, even if you didn't watch a show. So uh, glad to hear that, um, that that has been helpful to people. Definitely. The format of this podcast, not just the weekly episodes, but also the instant analysis episodes, all of that is very intentional. I sound like a football coach here. Everything we're doing is intentional, uh, but it is. We, we do this for this way for a reason. Uh, and I just am glad, of course, that so many of you enjoy it. So thank you so much for those five-star reviews. I would be remiss if I did not remind everyone as well to follow us on Twitter at Getting Overcast for episode drops, news, analysis, highlights, all that good stuff. You can also send in DMs and tweets that we will read on the show, whether they're questions or comments, again, on Twitter at Getting Overcast. Please also remember that here at Getting Over, I happen to love the number five. And I hope you do as well, because for just $5 a month or $50 for the entire year, you can become an official Getting Overhead. Just visit buymeacoffee.com slash getting over, sign up, you will get bonus audio, you will get news posts. And I know, Chris, you read our news post on Friday a lot of timely information that kind of uh, started to leak into the weekend into Monday already. So, you know, hopefully a lot of you uh, got a chance to see that. But we have news posts over there. Uh, we're going to be doing discussions and other things going forward. But those financial contributions, they support the continuation of the Getting Over Wrestling podcast. And we appreciate all of you who do become official Getting Overheads. So with that, let's get into today's show. We have a ton to talk about, as I always say we do, but it always remains true when I say it. I don't, I don't just throw it out there. Now, we do have the main event, the good, the bad, and the ugly, and the last word all coming up on today's show. Before we get to that, though, we have to talk about the big news of the day, WWE officially merging with Endeavor, becoming TKO Group Holdings. And folks, it is official as of the morning of this podcast, Tuesday, September 12th, 2023, Vince McMahon is no longer the independent majority shareholder, the no longer the person in independent majority control of WWE. And this is for the first time since June 6th, 1982. And the McMahon family will not have majority control of what was once the WWWF back in the day for the first time since 1953, 70 years. This may be the greatest power shift in professional wrestling history. It's at least the biggest development from a business end since March 26, 2001, the day Vince McMahon bought WCW. Now, if you want to remember our immediate reactions to this merger, go back and listen to episode 426 from April 3rd, 2023. Chris and I were both leaving our houses to go on trips that morning but we dropped a 30-minute breakdown of the deal, our expectations. We answered a bunch of questions and, and comments that came in right away. Now, we can go over some of the specifics here, especially for those of you who may not remember, but we're not going to spend the whole show talking about it because, number one, we did, and number two, there's still a lot of questions that are unanswered. This is just day one of this new company, but it's a $21 billion merger. Uh, it valued WWE at $9.1 billion at the time of the merger. Endeavor, now controls 51% and WWE 49% of TKO. Ari Emanuel and McMahon are listed as co-founders with Emanuel, the CEO of TKO, and McMahon, the executive chairman of the TKO board. Also, Mark Shapiro from Endeavor, he is serving as president and COO of TKO. Most notable here, McMahon has life tenure as chairman. He cannot be removed from his post under any circumstance. He also 
has the sole ability to nominate WWE's members of the board. And he has some veto powers that were not specifically outlined. It is believed that Vince's ownership stake is down to 34%, but that's the highest individual stake that anyone holds in all of TKO. So he got quite a deal. In terms of the day-to-day, WWE and UFC, they're going to operate as completely separate divisions. Nick Khan is now president of WWE. Dana White is the CEO of UFC. Neither of them will have any influence over the other's brand. And for anyone who's concerned, Paul Levesque remains chief creative officer of WWE. But it should be noted, neither Paul nor Dana are on the TKO board. That does not mean there are not interesting names on the TKO board, because there are. WWE's representatives right now, McMahon, Khan, Steve Coonan, who's the CEO of the Atlanta Hawks, and Carrie Wheeler, who's the CEO of Open Door. WWE also has one board spot left to fill that they haven't filled yet. Now, for the Endeavor side, beyond Emmanuel and Shapiro, the most notable name is Jonathan Kraft, president of the New England Patriots. So there are some heavy hitters on this board, and those are just the names I mentioned that you guys might be familiar with. There's obviously other big-time names on this board. But Chris, that's where we stand Tuesday. It's a transformational day in WWE. I do have a couple of questions that have come in. We'll get to those before we move on. But I just think more than anything else, it is immensely notable and immensely strange that here we are, you know, we started this show three years ago, right? Um, On the precipice of a pandemic. And of course, it's still not really over to some degree, but that's besides the point. Uh, we 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 did shows in with WWE in the Performance Center, then the Thunderdome, then fans are back. Uh, Vince McMahon steps away and basically retires. Then he comes back, and now here we are, three years after we started the show, approximately, and WWE is no longer in sole control of Vince McMahon. It is absolutely wild what has happened over these last three years. Yeah, I mean, they always said Vince would never give up ownership of the company we for two decades wondered shane or stephanie or triple h who's going to keep the company in the family and it ultimately turned out to be like succession where the the father eventually felt none of the kids were maybe best primed to do that and it was instead better to sell it to a major company Mm -hmm. and so yeah this is this is historic it's one of those days we will look back on that people like to point to when WWE became a publicly traded company and said, hey, that's when things started to ch- change for the direction of the company. This will probably be similar to that, too. But like you said, Vince still has a lot of control. Oh, yeah. Uh, and influence in the company. He's not going away. He will continue to be involved. But once he is gone, once he dies, he is up there in age. That will essentially be the end of the McMahons in WWE. So, um, possibly. You know, again, we talked about it in April. Uh, po- possibly. Well, like, like, like to have such an outstanding. There's a good. Role. Ch- I mean, so when when something like that happens, there's a good chance there's a, for lack of a better term, succession plan in terms of his stock. So I wouldn't be surprised. Mm-hmm. I'm not saying that I know this. I don't know this. And I, who could? Right. You'd have to have the documents. I'm just saying there's a chance that like all of Vince's shares go to Stephanie. If he dies and, and like, and it's right. very but possible like right now, she, she yeah. wouldn't be executive chairman of the TKO board, but it's very right. possible That's that she I mean. would still have his percentage of the company. I'm just pointing that out. I'm sorry. Go ahead. Right. Yeah. But she's obviously stepped away from the company totally. again and right. Shane is not involved. And so 
it's uh yeah it's you know you think back to the wcw simulcast with raw and the shane mcmahon angle and mm-hmm. uh none of that this time it, it's straight business you know and and uh no no dana white or mark shapiro or ari emmanuel showing up on raw to make the deal happen uh <laughs> would have been interesting but uh they're doing things by the book they are and on top of all of that just to kind of reiterate the point that you made about Vince McMahon and the position that he is now in, I think a couple things need to be understood. First, I'll repeat this. He's the executive chairman of TKO. So not just WWE, but UFC as well. So in some ways, you could make the argument that his power and influence has actually grown as part of this deal. And because again, he may not be a day-to-day WWE person anymore. Maybe he will be, maybe he won't be. But the fact that he is in that role, which he previously held just for WWE, a $9 billion company. Now he's in that role for a $21 billion merged company. I mean, it's it's wild. And, and he has life tenure, which means he can't be kicked out of that spot. These are wild situations that need to be kind of understood. So Vince, you know, he got a best of both worlds deal here. He got paid out a significant amount of money. Obviously, he kept some stock, a significant amount of stock. Um, so he's still making money. And the hope now is that the TKO symbol, uh, you know, goes huge in the stock exchange. Meanwhile, he, despite getting that windfall of cash, he is still in control and perhaps has even more control to some degree. The one thing I wanted to clear up here is I saw a lot of tweets and message board posts and comments Monday night, the last raw of the Vince McMahon era, uh, you know, Vince got his hands in creative one last time. I, I, I don't understand <laughs> how that can be the thought process when he's the executive chairman of this entire company and still has as much power as he ever did in WWE. He didn't lose any power in WWE. Triple H, Paul Levesque didn't lose any power in WWE. They're literally in their same roles. It's just that Vince's role is now even larger than it was and he has the ability to influence UFC as well. So this isn't the end or the beginning of Vince meddling in WWE creative. He can or will not do it whenever he so chooses, just as he was always able to. The only difference that I noticed between, you know, the last couple of days and the few days prior to it was reports were that Vince had spinal surgery and was laid up in bed and would be out of action doing anything. Uh, for months. Meanwhile, he's standing up at the New York Stock Exchange right next to Ari Emanuel, right next to Mark Shapiro, shaking hands. He's doing Hulk Hogan's, you know, ear gesture. He looked fine. So more than anything, I was shocked that he was as healthy as he was on Tuesday. But in terms of his role and his control and power, that did not change. Uh, I I mean, his ownership stake changed, but his control didn't. So I kind of just wanted to clear that up. And and, and, and what happens on screen on raw and smackdown is honestly such a small part of this company's plans and goals so like i i know for us who watch it every week all we care about is who's in control of creative and you know what's going on with the script but there is a lot more you know that is part of vince's job and always has been and so he'll get involved when he does and he won't when he doesn't that's that's not uh that's not changing so you're right i am curious what kind of role and influence Vince will have on stuff that involves UFC, Mm -hmm. you know, the stuff, 
this will be the first time really that he has control over stuff that's not WWE. So I'm well, really interested something to see successful. How that goes. Something successful that's not WWE. Because UFC is successful, whereas yes, yes, yes. <laughs> the XFL and you know Alpha Entertainment and uh, World Bodybuilding Federation or whatever the hell that was called back in the day. Right. So those I, are not I, mean, successful. I mean, like yeah, another company that's already there, not something right. that he kind of tried to create yeah. and, and, and that kind of stuff. So, um, yeah, that that's that's a new role for him. But yes, in terms of what happens day to day on Raw and SmackDown, that's going to be what it has been. Yeah, I think people also need to remember, you know, for all of our personal opinions about Vince McMahon, his creative, right? Vince. Dana, Ari, Mark, I'm talking about them using first names like I know them all, I don't. Uh, these are all very smart people. And and look, I disagree with certain people and their views on certain things. And some of the people that I just mentioned are people who I disagree with, you know, personally uh, and professionally as well, both. But these are smart people. Their goals are for their businesses to succeed. Sometimes they make the wrong decisions, but oftentimes for business reasons, they make the right decisions. And, you know, just because things don't necessarily go the way we always want them to on screen does not mean that the way things are operating behind the scenes are not uber successful. And we've seen that with WWE and the way it's grown, especially over the last few years. Of course, creative has gotten better recently, but that's, you know, 14 months. And you need to look at it, of course, from the bigger picture. So, Vince has a lot more on his plate now with TKO than he ever necessarily did just with WWE outside of the creative aspect. How much time is he going to have to get involved with creative? I honestly believe on a week to week basis, not that much. What I do believe will happen, and we saw this the Raw after WrestleMania, and there are reports that Vince made some changes to Raw last night. Um, I think, Chris, it'll be one of those situations where, you know, there's 365 days in a year, there's 52 weeks in a year, that's the number I was looking for, where 48 weeks out of the year, Vince has very little to no impact on creative, except, you know, those, that go-home show or the show after WrestleMania, or if they're about to announce a really big business deal, or if UFC talent might appear on Raw. There may be individual circumstances in which he gets involved to make sure things go the way he and the company as a whole want them to go. Again, the, the Raw after WrestleMania was an abject failure when Vince got involved. And last night, there were certainly some frustrations on Raw, though it wasn't a bad episode. We'll talk about that in a little bit. But I think when it comes to Vince McMahon and creative, he just does not have the time and should not have the time to be heavily involved week to week, even when Vince came back and reinserted himself as chairman of the board, he was very lightly touching creative. I mean, it was sparsely one week here, one week there, minor adjustments. And I know that for a fact. Last night, I can't tell you what he did or didn't do. It didn't seem like much. That seemed like a Triple H booked episode of Raw. So again, Chris, I think this guy has a lot more on his plate than people realize. He probably does have an itch to get involved with creative here and there, but I don't think it is his plan to be the lead creative voice of WWE. And I think it would be immensely stupid for him to do so. And I think he even realizes that given the way the product has improved, uh, both commercially and in the 
court of public opinion with Triple H, Paul Levesque holding the book and doing the job that he's been doing. Right. And, and to your point, like smart people in charge of this. Look, WWE's business has improved dramatically since Nick Khan became the, the president mm-hmm. of whatever role he has, which is now president from certain live events to international shows, to licenses, to, to different things. Like that's what the main point of this whole merger is. WWE is a is a live sports entertainment giant. So is UFC. You put them together. Endeavor's got global connections and licensing, event management, ticket sales, uh, agents, uh, agencies, all this kind of stuff. And you basically you're putting that behind WWE now to expand it into whatever. That's the purpose of of this of this thing. The, in terms of anything that impacts you as a viewer, mm-hmm. the number one thing I remain most interested in. And it may not happen soon, but WWE's Peacock deal is up in, I think, 2026. And we have seen under UFC where you can get UFC on ESPN Plus, but you have to pay on top of that Mm -hmm. to get the pay-per-views. Nick Khan has been asked about that, I think, on CNBC a few weeks or months ago. He said, you know, that's up to Peacock, basically. So it is something I, I wonder if it comes down the road where we get back to you're going to have to pay more to watch pay-per-views. And because, look, streaming in general, prices are going up because these companies got to make money. And so down the road, that is something I, I wonder about uh, where you're no longer, where you can, you got to spend more than five bucks to get a premium live event to pay-per-view. So again, don't think that's happening anytime soon, but it is something I will be keeping an eye on. Yeah, no, you're right. And Cigar Man, uh, one of our listeners actually wrote in with a, a similar question. He said, with streaming rights and the TKO group now merged, how will this affect Peacock's relationship with WWE programming, pay-per-views, content, all that type of stuff? And you gave that answer. It remains to be seen. We did discuss this, I believe, on that instant reaction episode back on April 3rd. But what I could see, Chris, is a situation where WWE's on Peacock and for all of those B-level shows, you get them free as part of your subscription. But WrestleMania, SummerSlam, Survivor Series, certain tentpole events, you have to pay $19.99 extra or $9.99 extra just to get those individual events. And I think, you know, would that, is that great for the consumer? For us? No, that would suck to pay more money. No one wants to pay more money. But would that make sense business-wise? It probably would. And I don't know how many viewers they would lose if they're like, hey, you know what? You get two nights of WrestleMania for 20 bucks. You know, I'm still paying that. I'm not thinking right. twice about it. It's it's not asking me to spend $150 on pay-per-views in a six-week span like AEW is doing right now. You know, it's, it's, that's a drastically different situation. But right now, and we'll move on from this momentarily, the two best deals in streaming, in my opinion, are Peacock, which is anywhere between, what is it, $9.99 and $19.99 a month or, or $14.99 a month, depending which plan that you have. Um, But because you get WWE, but you also get a ton of live sports and original programming and Apple TV is like $6.99 a month and the quality of stuff that you get from Apple is outstanding. So you have Peacock in a position as part of the marketplace right now where it's like, I don't want to say it's undervalued, but it is not charging nearly as much as Max or Netflix or I guess Amazon Prime is a great deal as well. But Max and Netflix are really the ones I'm, I'm thinking about that are super, super mm-hmm. expensive. Um, so for them to want to squeeze a little bit more money out of the WWE consumer, which, by the way, is a loyal consumer, I'm not saying I would like it. I don't want it to happen, but it would make sense for them to do that. 
Right. Peacock's price, I think, went up a dollar a dollar a yeah. couple of weeks ago, right before football to I think either six or seven dollars with the ads plan. That's what I have. You have the ad free plan. Mm-hmm. Um, but you're right. It gets you access to soccer, to everything. Your point about Apple, Apple gives you really quality shows for a low amount of money. But they also have the MLS package on top of that, which is extra. You have to pay extra to get the MLS season pass to get Lionel Messi and all that stuff, which, again, could be the model for these things moving forward. Yeah, it's going to be interesting. I did have a couple other tweets that came in. Uh, Fake John at Johnny N452. He says, how soon before we see an octagon match at WrestleMania? Uh, Never. That's how soon. Never. Uh, Josh Fountain at Josh underscore found 10, the number 10. Uh, how much crossover with talent do you expect? Obviously, if it did happen, UFC to WWE is what I'm asking. Also, will they plan event weekends and take over a city with both pay-per-views? So I want to address both of those. Talent crossover. I definitely think you're going to see UFC stars in attendance at WWE shows and WWE stars in attendance at UFC shows. That already happens naturally. Yes. And it's certainly going to happen even more now. I do think there are a number of UFC talents who have interest in WWE. They express it all the time. It is still a contractual issue. Just because they're part of the same overall company, um, that, that the parent company now that oversees both, it doesn't mean that just let's say Conor McGregor could show up on WWE and wrestle a match at WrestleMania and not get paid any more money. They'd still have to make a deal with the individual for that to happen. But would there be perhaps a little bit more flexibility now than there ever had been before from Dana Whiteside? Perhaps, but Dana's been very flexible. I mean, he supported Brock Lesnar and Ronda Rousey both going to WWE. He didn't support Matt Riddle, but he fired Matt Riddle. That was a totally different scenario. We're going to talk about Riddle later on today's show. Um, But like Daniel Cormier, he did special guest referee. What was it for Seth Rollins, Matt Riddle fight pit, if memory serves? So Cormier, Mm -hmm. uh, he's already... This was before the merger, right? He was in the co- he was in the Cody Rhodes documentary. He's in the Cody Rhodes documentary. He has done numerous pre-shows for WWE. He attends every WrestleMania. Uh, Mike Cormier jump on WWE commentary at some point. That would be incredible. He's a great commentator, a lot better than what WWE has in certain spots. Um, and he's talked for a long time about wanting to do that. Could Cormier get in the ring and wrestle someone? I could definitely see that. But again, this is a guy who's retired, right? Um, In terms of active UFC athletes coming to WWE, I think it's most likely the best answer is few and far between, but more frequently than in the past. The number one thing I would expect to see at some point is WWE champions coming out with for the walkout for UFC main events just to be in that group. Yeah, I can see that. Roman Reigns, Bianca Belair, somebody like I, I could definitely see that type of crossover where just the presence of a WWE superstar and their championship, presumably, just kind of adds to this group of people walking out. And Big E has done um, video packages, I think, for UFC. He's definitely done it for boxing. I I believe he did one for UFC as well. But LA Knight, LA Knight just did one for uh, for the UFC. It kept popping up on my Instagram. He was telling people to get ESPN Plus to watch the show that was, I think, last weekend. So I think that's where you're going to see it. You're going to see a lot of promotion between the two brands. You're watching a UFC pay-per-view. You're going to see a promotion for a WWE premium live event and vice versa. Maybe uh, sponsorships. You know how like WWE 2K often will sponsorship a WWE premium live event because that's the video game company doing it. 
a presenting sponsor might be like the UFC video game or UFC. I don't even know what number of pay-per-view they're on. UFC 842. Uh, that could be a presenting sponsor for WWE Fastlane. Like uh, there could also be sponsorship agreements that they reach, let's say with like Monster Energy or I guess Logan Paul's Prime would be a better example. Uh, that when they go and sell that sponsorship, they're selling a WWE show and a UFC show and they're promoting them in the same month. So that I think is where you're gonna see a lot of crossover visually. I don't think there's just gonna be an influx of UFC talent uh, wrestling on WWE television. I think it'll occasionally happen and it'll probably be fun when it does and they'll probably save it for tentpole events like WrestleManias and SummerSlams. But I don't think you're gonna see like Adesanya just come over and you know be in a big match with Roman Reigns in three months. Like, you know, that's just not gonna happen. Uh, Joe Schmo at JDC underscore 1996, he writes in, how do you foresee WWE's appetite to spend money on talent? Some of their notable talents have expiring contracts, while guys like MJF and Osprey are set to become free agents. I wonder if they're in the game to throw cash around. I'm not a UFC fan, but from what I know, they don't spend. So these are two totally different industries, uh, UFC and WWE. The first thing to remember is UFC does not really have a competitor that can pay like they do. And they also have kept fighter pay down for an extremely, extremely long time and underpaid for a long time. Now, you can make the argument that WWE underpays its talent as well, especially when you consider how many days they work, they put their bodies on the line, and they don't get the same slice of revenue that like NFL players do or NBA players do. But it's a completely different situation. Uh, those leagues are unionized. WWE talent is not. Um, and WWE has increased salaries significantly with the onset of AEW because they are competing for guys like the ones you mentioned. Regarding them in particular, uh, MJF is never leaving AEW or at least not on this next contract. I don't think Tony Khan is doing what he's doing with him. If MJF is going to play that 2024 storyline and actually leave at the end of it, I don't think yeah. that's happening. Uh, <laughs> Will, Will Ospreay will never sign with WWE or at least he won't until he's at the very end of his career. Uh, I think he's staying in New Japan. Maybe he'll do a, a, a simultaneous deal with AEW. Maybe he'll sign with AEW exclusively. I, I really don't see that. I think he loves being in Japan, they're currently promoting him as their top guy, Jin, um, and one of their top stars. It would not make sense for him to leave New Japan. But large, to, to answer your question on a, on a larger scale, I don't think WWE is going to be out here cutting talent costs significantly. I could very well be wrong about that. There could be a round of releases and a bunch of talent coming out. I think WWE right now is far more concerned about re-signing the talent that they have. And if you are a subscriber, if you're an official getting overhead, buymeacoffee.com slash getting over, I discuss this at decent length on Friday's news post. There's a number of contracts that are expiring that they want to resign. I don't think they're going to be penny pinching at this point. This is the time where you stay strong. And then a couple of years down the line, if you're not making the profits that you expected as part of this merger, that's when you go and make talent decisions. But I don't think that's happening right now. Right, and, and, and to what you said again, the 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 getting overhead. So you buy me a, a coffee. Really good information in that Friday post from Adam on people like Drew McIntyre and Seth Rollins. So like, mm -hmm. just, we're not, we're not trying to spoil that all on here. Go check that out if you want to know about stuff like that. And it most interesting, like to the point about the pay. You remember, like it still happens. Jake Paul, brother of Logan Paul, continually goes after UFC over its fighter pay. Mm -hmm. And it's just, it's an interesting dynamic with everything with Logan Paul being, being with WWE and all kinds of stuff. But like, whatever you think of Jake Paul, 
go look at the things he says about that because I he's I on the right side of that. It's a fair point. Yeah, that that he makes. Yeah. Um, as for cuts, you're right. It's hard to say. Uh, right after COVID, there were obviously a ton of cuts. Triple H takes over last year, brings a lot of them back. That fluctuates. I, I that's hard to say. The places where you would see cuts are in HR and mm-hmm. business department and stuff like that because these companies are now going to overlap uh, with those departments. So uh, we'll see with that. That's common in mergers. Really hope um, as many people as can can keep their jobs, especially people that we uh, communicate with within WWE. But time will tell. There's two areas where cost savings are going to happen immediately. And Chris mentioned one, uh, redundancies, the elimination of redundancies between the two companies. You know, people will lose their jobs. That's significantly unfortunate, obviously. Uh, The second area where there's going to be significant cost savings is you have to remember how much WWE runs show-wise compared to UFC. They run, when you consider house shows and TV, I mean, three times, four times as many events in a given month. It may even be more than that, five times as many. Um, Where there is going to be a cost savings is from the sharing of production equipment and technology advancements and introduction of that technology. You are going to see situations in which a WWE production truck might bring equipment over to a UFC show and vice versa. And that's going to happen. They're going to have to figure that out. It's going to be very difficult for them to figure that out, but they will. That is going to be where there is significant cost savings. And going back to the second half of Josh's question, um, will they plan events over one weekend in a city and just dominate? I think that's definitely possible, but I don't think they're going to ever do them on the same day again, which was a terrible decision for WWE doing money in the bank against the UFC pay-per-view on fight week in Las Vegas. Like that's never going to happen. Could they possibly do one on Saturday, one on Sunday and try to run the entire city? And then obviously you'd have SmackDown on Friday and uh, Raw on Monday and maybe a UFC TV show mixed in there. I could definitely see that happening. I could see them making fight week in in Las Vegas an annual thing. I hope they don't because that's a UFC dominated situation. It would not be good for WWE. Um, I also think though, the idea of kind of splitting and attacking the country makes a lot of sense. So you have UFC in Los Angeles, you have WWE in New York, you have UFC in Florida, you have WWE in Seattle. Like I think that makes more sense to some degree than it does trying to dominate an entire weekend where your ticket sales would suffer because you're trying to get people to buy rather than two events, possibly four events. So that's my take on the entire thing, Chris. I know you said a significant amount. Is there anything else you want to talk about with TKO Group Holdings before we move on and actually talk about professional wrestling on today's show? No, I think that's good. I think we covered this detailed and I hope people uh, learned uh, about it instead of just most of the talk being Vince McMahon creative or not. Like there's there's a lot that goes into this and uh, I hope hope we all learned something. No doubt. And I should also note that uh, Nick Khan did send a memo, as one would in a president of a company role, to everyone inside of WWE, uh, basically just letting them know, hey, no changes right now. Uh, the transition will happen. HR will answer any questions as we you know, potentially move some roles and positions and, ha- and have a different reporting structure. But other than that, no major changes coming on day one of this merger. So th- with that said, let's go ahead and move on to the week that was in WWE. Chris, SmackDown for me was frustrating again on Friday. It took more than 10 minutes into the show for anything to happen. And I am not exaggerating when I say that. The first 10 minutes without commercials on SmackDown 
were video packages from Payback and ring entrances for four women in the women's tag team match. Then the match began at 8.10 and went to commercial one minute later. It was an immensely frustrating viewing experience, and I cannot see how anyone thought it was a good idea to begin the show that way from the standpoint of attempting to grab and then retain viewership. I don't know if you noticed the same on Friday, but that was my biggest frustration with SmackDown. Yes, WWE will often go along with those intros. It'll be three to four minutes of video packages and there's an entrance and you look at the clock and it's like, oh, it's been 10 minutes and, you know, we haven't, no one has said a word because Roman Reigns is still doing his entrance. I'm, I'm surprised, especially on SmackDown, that they go along with that kind of stuff. The reverse where AEW opens the show and then you got a match happening is like too much the other direction for me. So (laughs) exactly. Yeah, yeah, this was uh, it was it was very long to start SmackDown. And then you had Raw on Monday night. I felt like the pacing of the show was entirely off. They tried to load up hour three. I think they forgot that you need people to stay tuned in hour two. It started really strong with Jey Uso, Kevin Owens and the bloodline. Then it kind of fell off a cliff for like 40 minutes. And then it was a roller coaster up until like 10 or 10.10, where it felt like they, like I said, backloaded the program. But again, you need to keep people watching throughout. It was way different pacing than what WWE normally does against Monday Night Football. I could see maybe, hey, we're going to try this. And we usually maintain ratings in the first couple hours. Then they fall off a cliff in hour three. What if we build up hour three? Maybe it'll be consistent across the show. But I mean, against that game on Monday night, I don't know if you were watching uh, Jets Bills. It was a wild game. I cannot imagine WWE did well from a rating standpoint. And I don't think that the pacing that they put in place here is something that's sustainable for the rest of the season. No, it was 100% a show built around Monday Night Football and the timing of things. Cody Rhodes and Seth Rollins each had their segments like in the middle of the show. I think one of them was at halftime. I texted you about an hour into the show. I was like, they have completely mailed this in. The show makes no sense. They're, the pacing makes no sense. They're not telling a story throughout the show. Um, and look, there was a report that Vince made, made some changes. I don't know. I do think Monday Night Football was a big part of that. And yes, the, the, the first Monday Night Football of the year does monster ratings. It was Aaron Rodgers. It was a lot. Doing that type of raw every week is not going to be tenable. Yeah, agreed. Now, just to clarify, you said they didn't tell a story throughout the show. We thought they might not be when you texted me, but then hour three started and it's like, oh, they went back to the Jey Uso story three different times in the final hour of the show. So they did tell a story throughout the show, but there was a big gap where you're just like, what do you like? What was happening in that in that time after the opening segment? It was so weird. We'll get to that momentarily. Last thing before we get to the main event, SmackDown, just like Raw last week, debuted a new intro. Most notable, Edge was still in it, and there were no other real surprises other than that LA Knight was actually very early in that package. And Roman Reigns, I think, was only shown one time in the entire intro, which is very rare for a WWE intro. Uh, and of course, the show that has Roman Reigns on it. So with that said, let's move on to the first of three main segments on this edition of the Getting Over Wrestling Podcast. We're going to begin, as we always do, by sliding into the main event. This is the main event. Now, there are a lot of pieces in this week's main event, so I want to clarify the topic. The topic is the Usos in totality. 
And I will explain, you'll understand by the time we get to the end of this main event, why that is the case. Let's start with SmackDown. Jimmy Uso backstage approached Paul Heyman all hyped up, saying no one told him anything about being out of the bloodline, so he's in. He was wearing the We The One shirt. Heyman explained neither Roman Reigns nor Solo Sokoa are there, and Jimmy had a funny answer saying, of course, when he said Roman wasn't there. I thought that was funny. Uh, Paul explained that Jimmy got offered a car and some other stuff, and while he's not officially in, if he handles his business, a reunion was possible. Heyman then refused to dap him up, and he walked off. As he walked off, he ran into AJ Styles. They talked shit, only for Jimmy to attack AJ, with Heyman immediately calling Reigns after. Styles was later adamant that he would fight. Heyman told Adam Pearce he wanted retribution for Styles getting in his face. He also demanded to know who was being traded from Raw. Pierce said those decisions came from above him. Later backstage, Styles was pissed at the Good Brothers for messing around backstage and not paying attention. They were looking at their phone. They could have prevented him from being attacked, so he slapped the phone out of their hands, saying since they weren't there for him earlier, he doesn't want them anywhere near his match with Jimmy in the main event. Now we know what the deal was with the OC last week. We were wondering why there was some odd consternation with them. It fully developed this Friday night. This was all strong backstage storyline development. For anyone who thought last week there was a nonsensical storyline here, it does seem like the story they're telling, and I'm going to get into the specifics of that when we wrap up this part of the segment, but it seems like the story is cohesive with a clear plan in mind. The keys here were Jimmy trying to prove his loyalty. He tugged at his shirt. He was showing the we the ones. Paul refusing to dap him up. Commentary also twice. They harped on how Jimmy was out of the bloodline at the start of last week's show, then confusingly wanted back in at the end of the show. All of that is purposeful. It's not particularly deep, but I found this to be a successful setup for what was coming in the main event. Yes, and I'll hold my total Jimmy thoughts for kind of when we get to the end of that, but okay. um, I, I him wearing the We The One shirt, like that's such a great little thing to show him trying to get back in. Like, it's not just saying it, it's not just doing it. Like, he's like, look, I got the shirt back. Like, let's run this back. Like, wh whoever thought to do that, really, really smart thing. As for Paul Heyman, I want to note something weird here, but because today, September 12th, is new iPhone day, mm -hmm. I need to note that Paul Heyman has the iPhone XR. <laughs> and you can tell by the way the camera is set up on the back of the phone. That phone came out in 2018. That is five years ago. <laughs> what is the battery life on that thing at this point? How does Paul Heyman not always have the latest iPhone? I, I got to know. Uh, it's just, it's, I've thought about it for a long time. And today being a new iPhone day, felt like the day to mention it. It is strange that he doesn't upgrade the new phone. And what's funny is he does a lot of interviews. Like he'll be on the Pat McAfee show or this show or that show. And he just does FaceTime when he, when he calls in or like Skype or, or Zoom yeah. over his phone. But it's the shittiest quality when obviously there's much better quality on the newer phones. But what's also really funny about Paul is, you know, he does the cell phone thing, call Roman Reigns, he uses Siri, he does that constantly. But if you think all the way back to the beginning of his career, Dangerous Alliance, WCW, the cell phone has always been part of his gimmick carrying that phone around. Mm -hmm. And yeah, there was a period of time with Brock Lesnar where he didn't, of course, and it it wasn't a um, wasn't something that was on his person that you could visually see, you know, every single time he was on screen. But ever since he's become the special counsel, the wise man to Roman Reigns, he's brought the cell phone gimmick back into his persona 
And I absolutely love that. I, I think it's something that people probably notice but don't realize was such a large part of Paul Heyman back in the day, especially new fans. He used to carry around that really old, uh, big gray, you know, cell phone, the original uh, cellular telephone. If you've ever seen Wall Street with like Michael Douglas, the phone that he used in that movie. So I just, I always pop when I see him back in the day. And it's funny that even today he's carrying a phone around with him as this, you know, special counsel wise man character. Anyway, let's keep going with SmackDown. We had AJ Styles against Jimmy Uso in the main event. Heyman and Sokoa came out after a few minutes, despite Paul saying earlier Solo wasn't there. Presumption is he called Roman Reigns and got permission for Solo to visit. Uh, they got into a slap fight before Styles hit a Pele kick and a phenomenal forearm over the ropes outside. Styles kept getting distracted by Sokoa, who stood outside and didn't do anything. Jimmy then choked AJ on the middle rope, expecting help from Solo, like a punch or a spike. Uh, the referee backed Jimmy away, but Solo didn't do anything. He refused. Then they all went outside. Sokoa literally turned his back to Jimmy. Styles attacked both of them and hit phenomenal forearm for the squeaky clean one, two, three. There was also a post-match, but before we get to the post-match, let's start with this. I thought it was a really rough main event segment, starting with a rough match in terms of the in-ring work. It had no heat whatsoever, mostly because it operated at a snail's pace. Styles got plenty of pops early, but as it dragged, fans just lost interest. And I say that despite if you actually visually watch the show, everyone on the floor was standing for the majority of the match, and everyone in the arena was loud for the rest of the night, but they weren't for the majority of this match. So there was a clear expectation from the fans that something interesting would happen, but it didn't deliver. Styles won clean. There wasn't much reaction to that either. And regarding AJ, I should note, it seems clear the path for him is probably a title match with Reigns at Crown Jewel. First time matchup as part of this reign, at least. Huge babyface opponent, big show. Plus, you have the OC that's able to help Styles against the bloodline in whatever form that takes. Back to the storyline. Here's the deal. Without Roman and Jay, who are by far the two most interesting people in the bloodline, it's just gotten boring. Like, dead-ass boring. Heyman is great. He can only do so much. Sokoa has no personality as part of his character. And Jimmy is one-tenth the actor and performer that Jay is. That might be me being nice. I have an idea of where the storyline is going. We'll go there in a second. But I don't see how Triple H or anyone in creative right now thought Jimmy could carry this on his own. Even if Jimmy's part pays off nicely, it's currently in a phase of the storytelling where him trying to align back with Bloodline seems nonsensical. The question that stands, though, is whether it is nonsensical. Something that's happened continuously in the Bloodline story, and I've said this before, is we will go through a few down weeks where everyone writes it off and it's jumped the shark and it's terrible and they waited too long and whatever the case. And then suddenly, boom, something happens and it puts all the other weeks into context or Reigns returns and the intensity amps up again. In this case, I believe I was actually wrong last week, the way I projected the storyline. I looked at it from the standpoint of Jimmy not actually wanting to rejoin, but using it as a way to get close to them and then hurt them from the inside. After this week, I think they're telling a vastly different story. It seems the gimmick is that Jimmy, he was the first one to extricate himself from Roman. And when he did that, his goal was to bring Jay with him. He did it for them as brothers. They were a team, just like they had been their entire lives. Then Jay got the title match and the promise of being tribal chief. 
And Jimmy, not only was he jealous, but he was worried they would get split as Jay would get corrupted and turn into Roman. We already know this because they explained it on TV as motivation. What seems to be the story now is simply that Jimmy fears being on his own. It's relatable. He expected to still have Jay by his side, but he doesn't. Jimmy left the bloodline. They hate him. Jimmy doesn't have anyone. So now, left to that reality, he's slinking back to the bloodline with his tail between his legs. In that way, Jimmy is able to have meant every single word that he said and every single action that he took in the moments they happened. It's just that now, faced with being alone, he feels as if he has no other choice based on the way his life has played out to this point. And my further guess is the way Jay and Jimmy ultimately feud has to do with Jay maybe trying to save his brother from the bloodline, just like Jimmy did to Jay previously. Full circle. Not totally sure about that part yet, but we'll get back to that. So again, I don't believe the story they are telling will be nonsensical. But as of right now, they are failing in their task of telling the story in a compelling manner. And because of that, it's boring and it's a tad confusing. Jimmy isn't expressing himself in the right way. Roman isn't there gaslighting him. Jay isn't there for Jimmy to play off. Sokoa makes no impact at all when his character is there without Reigns. And Heyman can only do so much on his own. So Chris, that's my evaluation of what's going on in the storyline, the booking, and the present situation. It's it's currently boring. It currently seems like it might be nonsensical. I do believe it will come together and not be boring, but that doesn't change the fact of what's happening right now. Your read on the story is 100% correct because commentary literally said that during the match. They said, Jay was willing to go alone and Jimmy can't handle being alone. So oh, I didn't even Jay hear that. Gone, <laughs> I didn't even hear that. I swear. He's going back to the bloodline. I don't remember exactly who said it because I got they got three of them there, but they I wrote it down in my notes. Commentary said that I was like, "Yep, that's exactly what it is." J- Jimmy can't handle being on his own. Jay want Jay had to get out, had to go do his own thing. With Jimmy, Jimmy got jealous, lashed out. Jay pieces out, and now Jimmy doesn't have anybody, and he has to and he has to he has to attach himself to something, which mm-hmm. I think is. A compelling story. It is. But you're right that Jimmy, at least so far, hasn't told that yet. It had to come from commentary during the match. And, and, and as part of that, that's one of the reason AJ, one of the reasons AJ Jimmy as a main event didn't have any heat. Because Jimmy doesn't have any heat. Right. Because he's not part of the bloodline, so we can't hate him for that. But he does, he did betray Jay. Like, there's just, he's stuck in no man's land right now so we don't have a reaction to him we you know we don't know if we should be upset at him for what he did to jay and trying to join the bloodline or he was being honest when he was worried and he tried to save jay by costing him at SummerSlam. that's it's it is a nuanced complex story that they're not telling well enough and on top of that in a wrestling context it doesn't it doesn't create a clear emotion so I'm not surprised we, we we got the lack of reaction that we did. As for AJ, I mentioned it before, but not only is he growing the beard out, he's growing the chest hair out. He's looking like old man AJ Styles here, like we got with old man Edge, you know, when he came back. And I, I like the look. It's a different look. AJ really needs to get a lot of heat back in a positive way. He did get a lot of reaction. People do like him. 
but he's been so far away from the main event for such a long time that he's going to need a couple of weeks. As soon as you get him back in the ring with Roman, though, whenever that happens, it's going to feel like, oh, man, AJ Styles, Roman Reigns or something like that again. And it'll be fun. Uh, And I'm looking forward to that. So I see what they're going for. I do think it'll be a bit before it becomes clear and digestible. I totally agree with that. And that's the frustration. It's that we're watching this show weekly and now two weeks in a row now on SmackDown, we're like, oh God, Jimmy, like, like we're like almost rolling our eyes. Like he's the least interesting person in this entire group. And I don't mean to like denigrate the guy, but when you compare him, when you juxtapose him directly with Jay, Jay has all the personality in the world. He has the acting chops. He has the in-ring ability. I can't believe there was a, a point or not a point. The vast majority of their careers where I thought they were interchangeable guys. They're not like now. Look, Jay has something going for him, Chris. He had that extended period at the start of the pandemic to work him and Roman and no one else. And Jimmy wasn't there. And even when Jimmy showed up, it was just for bit parts here and there for a long time. But the the difference in the charisma level between Jay and Jimmy to me is astounding. Yes. And, and, and I mean, that's become clear. Jimmy's always been more of the tough guy. Jay's more of the emotional guy. And it works together. Separately, Jimmy on his own as the tough guy doesn't quite work, especially when Solo is the more tough guy. <laughs> and you just you, they're trying to figure out that space with Jimmy. So let's move on from this because there's still a lot more from SmackDown, not to mention Raw. So the post-match after Styles and Jimmy had Sokoa chase Styles with Judgment Day coming out and randomly attacking AJ and throwing him to the wolves. So Sokoa hit the Samoan spike and then stared them down as Judgment Day smirked and SmackDown ended. And I should note there was no follow-up to this on Raw. Now, the whole Judgment Day interaction was strange to me only because earlier in the show, and we'll get to this in a moment, they talked about being the dominant faction with Bloodline disappearing. Yet an hour later, they're literally helping Bloodline. What I feel most missed about it is that Bloodline and Judgment Day, they cut that deal on Raw last year or a couple months ago, actually, it was this year, about working together rather than against each other. But it's not like that was revisited or Heyman made a remark at any point about having backup. So it felt really random in the moment. It could be a lead into something. Maybe they're telling a long-term story for Survivor Series where Judgment Day and Bloodline team up against a bunch of baby faces from both brands. But that's 74 days away. You know what I'm saying? So in this moment, you still had, uh, you know, Sokoa and Jimmy, in theory, against AJ, two on one. And yet Judgment Day was still needed. I thought that was a little bit strange. Yes, at, at, at the time. But I think what happens by the end of this segment kind of explains it more a little bit. But it did, I did note as well when Rhea said, like you said, we are the most dominant faction in WWE. My first thought was they just said the word faction on live television. They've that been saying not it. happen yeah. very often. Yeah. And, and it was like, there's got to be a purpose to that. And I think there was. Absolutely. So we'll also talk about the Judgment Day segment on SmackDown. They fought Brawling Brutes in a non-title match. This opened hour two with a three-way promo from the guys. The booing 
twice completely drowned out Dominic Mysterio, who was literally screaming on the mic to be heard. There was also a <laughs> fan sign that read Dom sucks eggs, referring to the classic Terry Funk t-shirt. I really appreciated that. Uh, Ridge Holland then cut a pretty basic promo on the heels, but I got to tell you, it seemed effortless, Ridge Holland speaking, which I never would have guessed. I think that's the first time he's gotten that much time on the mic, so I was really pleasantly surprised by that. That said, the segment wasn't much of anything. Pretty Dudley watched backstage with Kit Wilson still in the wheelchair. Great to see them back on TV. Butch had a nice hot tag with a shining wizard, and the faces actually dominated most of this match. Dom distracted, so Butch gave him a few beats, only to eat Finn Balor's signatures. Holland ultimately ate south of heaven, with Butch getting thrown on top of him with the same move, and then Balor hitting coup de grace for the win. Strong segment, it gave the new champions an establishment win in a situation where they had the odds and Sheamus, of course, wasn't there. Nice usage of the Brutes as well, given they were on top for the majority of the match. They got a ton of time, so it wasn't like they got squashed or anything. It was just a normal tag team match that they happened to lose. I do feel that Judgment Day working both shows, though it is within kayfabe, given they have both titles and they can appear on both shows, it's going to wear really thin if they do this with any consistency. I do not want that to happen. If you want them on SmackDown occasionally, that's fine. But week to week, they should still be a raw act. And that's really all I got to say about this. One of the things I wrote in my notes to make sure I said on this podcast is that Dominic Mysterio is one of the most, has some of the biggest heel heat mm-hmm. in modern pro wrestling history. Like, whatever you think about him as a character, the fact that he has to scream on the microphone to get heard is wild. And that is, ex- if you're a pro wrestler, that is your dream. That yeah. <laughs> That is the end goal of all of it, that you are eliciting such a reaction that you can't even talk. He doesn't even have to cut good promos anymore. Like, literally, it doesn't matter what he says. It doesn't have to be complete sentences. It means nothing. He just has to be there, and he will get booed out of the building. That is just incredible. So it's just, it's happening every week. It's getting bigger and bigger and bigger every week. It is just something. I did like the Ridge Holland promo. I'm still upset that they don't sell those brawling brutes Soccer jerseys it's crazy. at WWE shop. Yeah, it's crazy. I went and, and I went and I went and looked for it. Um, Damian Priest made a good point uh, that they beat Sammy and KO, something that Roman Reigns couldn't do, mm-hmm. which is a good point. Like, like I'm glad he said that. Uh, and so I like this. One of my other takeaways was, was if you had LA Knight versus Dominic Mysterio, it might be two of the biggest. reactions we've had in wrestling history (laughs) i mean if if they built that for like a fast lane match i know they're obviously doing the miz thing but if they did or they put that at crown jewel or something i mean that would be outstanding they really should effort to do that even if it doesn't make much sense they should it's a it's it's a minor match like you just do it for the reaction right just do it one time two week build get it over with and then you move on with their lives Uh, but to your point about dom and one of our listeners tp wrote in that It's mind-blowing the reaction Dom is getting. You guys are completely right. This is the definition of nuclear heat. It's incredible. Now, I do think, okay, that WWE may be turning up the gain on the crowd a little bit or the gain down on Dominic's mic a little bit just to make it seem even more drastic than it actually is. 
But despite that, these are still deafening boos that he's getting. You can hear it in the live fan footage. You can see it with the number of fans that immediately get on their feet or cup their hands around their mouths every time he tries to say a single word. And what's most impressive, it hasn't been one month or two months. It's been multiple months. I mean, I can't even count at this point. I really should go back that this has happened, Chris. It is consistent nuclear heat. And the guy isn't really doing much of anything. Like, yeah, he's a piece of shit, his character. And yeah, I guess, it, you know, he turned on his father, which of course is a, a bad thing, you know, in, in kayfabe and in reality. But it's not like every week he's going out there and like stabbing someone in the head with a screwdriver or making little girls cry like Gunther did. Or like, you know what I mean? He's not doing despicable stuff mm-hmm. every single week, but people hate him. And yeah, man, it is just outstanding. So I'm glad you pointed that out. I was going to mention it later, but even here in that moment, it's fantastic. So let's go ahead and move over to Raw, okay, where a ton of stuff happened with Jay Uso. And again, we're going to tie this all together before we get out of this segment. So Jay opened the show to another sick pop. His entrance, you want to talk about fan reactions, Chris. It's incredible. The music, the blue colors, the lights. People are wondering why he's wearing blue. Because the bloodline is red and he's doing the opposite. (laughs) It's not that hard to understand. Um, But the way the crowd sways with him, he's a bonafide main event talent at this point and not just based on the name. The way this guy continues to improve, get more over and gain traction with the fans, it's immense. Remember the penultimate scene in 8 Mile where Eminem gets the crowd bouncing, B-Rabbit gets the crowd bouncing, he rips Papa Doc, you know, everybody in the 313, that whole type of part of the battle. I can't help but see that every single time Jay gets on the top rope and bounces his arms and the crowd goes with him. It's like a party when he enters. Legitimately, who else has an entrance like this? Yeah, people sing along to Chris Jericho and they sing along to Cody Rhodes and they do the woe. People pop huge for LA Knight and Brian Danielson previously. With Daniel Bryan, they did the yes chant. Jay literally gets the crowd rocking with him. It's insanely impressive. I cannot remember the last time someone had an entrance like this. The Usos theme was a banger for a while. And I don't think it was talked about enough. And partly because the Usos were heels for so long with that theme. You you tweak it. You put it uh, as a face theme and it works. Totally works. I'm not 100% sold on Jay right now, but I can't deny that crowds are reacting incredibly positively to them. And WWE's made a point to emphasize Jimmy's new entrance and Jay's entrance as well. Like they they put them both out on social media and said, look how great these are. So they've made a point to do that. And it's it's working. What, what, what Jimmy's entrance most reminds me of with the people with their hands is... Booker T in WCW with the raise the roof stuff that he had going on. At the Jay. Time, yeah. The Harlem Jay's Booker entrance. T stuff. Yeah. I'm sorry. J- Jay's entrance is a lot like what Booker T used to have. So uh, yeah, no, it's, it's good stuff. It does have some of that Harlem heat type of feel. You're right. But it's just in modern wrestling and modern WWE. I really can't think of an entrance that like where the crowd is jumping up and down dancing, which is pretty much what they're doing. It's, it's, mm-hmm. It's crazy that he's this over. I mean, it's great. He deserves it. He's been incredible. But I saw that the last two weeks when he showed up on Raw and 
I just couldn't help but kind of point it out here. It's it's really impressive. Uh, so Jay did his intro and then the Welcome to Monday Night Raw intro. Then Kevin Owens came out saying Jay wasn't on Raw, but rather the KO show. Owens said he's been in Jay's shoes before as a bad guy trying to go good. And it takes a long time to earn respect and trust. He hasn't earned that yet from KO, even if Sami Zayn and Cody Rhodes are cool with him. Judgment Day, Sands, Rhea Ripley then came in getting Jay's back while saying they run the show and their door will remain open, just like it stayed open for Dom all of last year. Dom got booed the way that we discussed. Then Priest said uh, he thought they had a match scheduled with KO and Sammy, wondering what happened to it. It led to Jay offering and asking KO to team up so he could prove himself. Owens delayed an answer. He eventually agreed. And then Jay just super kicked Dom's head clean off his body at the end of this segment. It was really funny the way they did it. So let's just get into the match. Balor and Priest against Jay and KO in a non-title match. The crowd was on fire for Jay the entire time. Owens sold a knee but hit a tornado DDT on Priest, then an exceptional avalanche twisting brainbuster on Balor. It fell apart as Priest ducked a Jay superkick that accidentally nailed KO. Balor followed with coup de grace for the win. So Jay took the blame right after the bell. KO shook his head and walked off. Then backstage, Jay fully apologized. KO lost his shit, telling him, go join Judgment Day and dye your hair purple. I thought this was the perfect booking for the Jay storyline and for Judgment Day to get another big win. And that's on top of a thrilling match that got plenty of time against the start of Monday Night Football. You're going to hear criticisms about the way Raw was booked. We mentioned it earlier. This is not one of them. The first 30, 40 minutes of Raw, exactly what you want when you're going head to head with the NFL. No question about it. When KO and Judgment Day came out in succession, I rolled my eyes at first because I was really worried this was going to be repetitive. And them mentioning that they were supposed to fight KO and Sammy, I was like, again? Like, how how could they even go back to that? But this wasn't about KO and Judgment Day. It was completely about Jay. And because of that, it felt fresh. I just really need Sammy and KO to get away from Judgment Day sooner than later, especially now that the titles have changed. I don't think that's what's happening. But in terms of what we got from these segments on Monday... I didn't think you could ask for much more from the first 40 minutes of a Raw. Yeah, it, it was really good, really exciting stuff. It really is incredible that Kevin Owens is like, no, man, you have to earn trust because of the bad things you did. When that's like the entire Kevin Owens character is him betraying Sami Zayn. Like their entire life is basically you can't trust Kevin Owens. He's going to turn on you. So Kevin Owens being like, no, man, I can't trust you. It was I thought that was pretty funny and they, they addressed it in a good way. Match was a lot of fun. Got shoot. Like you said, 30, 40 minutes all together. Everything was. Um, that that was good. And then, the you know, the expected, you know, not on the same page, cost them the match by the book type of stuff. I did love the Kevin Owens line, dye your hair purple and go join Judgment Day because a week ago, the back of the hair was blonde. This week it was blue. So I don't know if it's just going to be blue from now on and they figured it out or if he's going to change it every week or what. But uh, I, I like that little note there by Kevin Owens as someone, as we always say, who watches the show. Someone can correct me, but I believe when you're changing hair color, you can't just go from one to another. So I think they dyed it blonde to then dye it blue because it used to be red. So that's my guess in, in why, why that was the case. Uh, but, you know, I like the blue color gimmick with Jay. And yeah, I mean, it just it was extremely well done the way they opened. But there was a lot more here. Uh, so Cody Rhodes came out just after 9.35 p.m. Eastern. And I say that time exactly because it was right as Monday Night Football went to halftime. And you can't time that mm-hmm. even though you can guess 
You can't time it perfectly, yet they did. Uh, he said he was out to discuss Jay. Immediately, Dom interrupted with JD McDonough by his side. The booing was even louder in this segment than it was the show opener. Dom said Jay will join Judgment Day, and there's nothing he can do about it. Uh, so Cody attacked Dom. JD joined in. Cody hit Dom with a Cody cutter and JD with crossroads. Then he caught Dom with crossroads just for good measure, completely wiping the floor with both of them. So look, no doubt this was hot. The crowd loved it. If we were grading it in the other segment, I'd probably give it a good. But why WWE would only give us four minutes of Cody on TV after not having him on last week and why Cody is again going after Dom and why there was zero explanation either in this segment or any other part of the show for McDonough being out there with Mysterio. It kind of just seemed half booked to me. I don't see why WWE competing against Monday Night Football for the first time this year wouldn't have Cody cut an extended promo first or have that lead into a Rhodes-McDonough match or a match against anyone or anything more than what we got. Why are they hiding their top draw at their most competitive time of the year? It does not make any sense to me. Also, why the fuck does production cut away from the best part of his entrance every week just to do a fan shot? I want to see Cody do the woe, and I want to see the fireworks. Yeah. I don't want to see a fan mouth the words woe. It, it doesn't matter. We've seen it a million times. Uh, so that's stupid, and clearly I was frustrated by what we got here, even if it was good, even if it was entertaining. I don't know why you're giving us four minutes of Cody on a three-hour Raw against Monday Night Football. That does not make any sense to me. Yes, when I said at the beginning of the show the pacing and the lack of story and emphasis on certain things and focusing on halftime. This was exactly that. Cody Rhodes is not doing anything right now, I guess. And I don't know why he should be. He should always be doing something and open the show with a promo or, or cut a big promo at this time to set up something else. Like, yeah, it just, it was very strange. It was fine. It was good for what it was, but it was clearly not part of something much bigger two weeks in a row now for mm -hmm. Cody. So surprising. It does seem like the next person I'm about to talk about, Drew McIntyre, is building towards something with Cody. Uh, just because if you remember when Jay showed up, Drew talked about having problems with Jay and how Cody was the one who brought him there. So it kind of seems like Cody's doing one thing, Drew's doing another, and they might kind of then combine and go head to head. But again, we're not there yet. So in the interim, the last like three weeks, Cody's really not done anything and he didn't even have a match at payback. So it's like, what have they really done with Cody over the last two months? Not much. This is your top draw on Raw. You need to get this guy heavily involved in your show. And it's great that Jay's there and it's great that other people are over. Don't get me wrong. I love how many people are on TV each week in on Raw Monday nights. But that doesn't mean you shouldn't be putting Cody Rhodes on television. It just doesn't make sense. Uh, so I talked about Drew McIntyre. He approached Jay backstage. He looked at him in the eyes, said, I don't trust you. Jay said, cool. McIntyre then went on about how Judgment Day was probably looking good for him without his brother or without the bloodline by his side. And Jay made a challenge for next week that McIntyre eagerly accepted. So then Finn approached Jay. He pointed out, hey, these baby faces, Kevin Owens, Drew McIntyre, they want nothing to do with you. But all of Judgment Day were fans of you. Then he gave a really funny line as he was saying this. He goes, I'm a fan of you, Jay. Dominic's a fan of you. 
Priest is a fan of you. And Jay didn't give any reaction to any of that. Then Balor said, mm-hmm. Rhea's a fan. And Jay's like, oh, for real? Hysterical. She's the, <laughs> yeah. she's the only one whose approval he cared about out of the entire group. Uh, but anyway, Balor reiterated that the door to Judgment Day will always be open for him. And then Judgment Day later talked amongst themselves about Jay being isolated by the locker room and how that will make him um, endeared to them even more as long as they keep pressing. So not only did we get fresh booking here with Jay and Drew, particularly in these roles, we got a great hook for next week's Raw for the match between them. Better than most we got this week. But Chris, beyond that, there's a really interesting dichotomy going on between the Jay and Jimmy storylines that further crystallizes what is happening on both shows. This is what I was talking about at the beginning of the main event segment. This segment with Jay and Balor, it not only hit in a vacuum, it proved out what I'm about to say. On SmackDown, you have Jimmy feeling lost. He's actively looking for a home. This did not go as he planned. He's lonely without Jay. He lacks confidence to survive on his own. He seems ready to do whatever he can to put his tail between his legs, slink back to the only people he thinks will have his back, the bloodline. Then on Raw, you have Jay actually standing on his own two feet with a faction actively trying to recruit him into their ranks. We know they are doing it nefariously, but they are saying all the right things to his face. Jay is trying to avoid falling into the same pitfalls he did previously, despite being in a war with the babyface side of the roster that he's actually trying to join. Will Jay's hand get forced? Can he do enough to prove himself and get the support from the faces? Jimmy's storyline makes even more sense when you put it in context of what's happening to his brother on Raw. And in the end, the lesson both of them may learn, and we're talking six months down the line, maybe at WrestleMania, who the hell knows, is they need each other for completely different reasons. It's kind of brilliant if you think about it. That is the way I contextualized all this, not just with Jay on Monday, but with Jimmy on Friday and both of them simultaneously. Yes, I I agree. And I agree that it's going to be a bit of time there. I don't expect them to have Jay and Jimmy interact anytime soon. They split them up. They're on separate shows. They need to do their own stories that will eventually come back together. The Jimmy story I mentioned, we talked about Jay wanted to be on his own. Jimmy can't handle being alone. And he's struggling with that. I love that every baby face that had an issue with the bloodline is going up to Jay and being like, dude, I don't like you for what you did, you know, way back when that is rewarding viewers Mm -hmm. for watching. Mm -hmm. If you watch clash at the castle and what happened to drew McIntyre, you understand why drew McIntyre is not going to welcome Jay back with open arms. You understand why Kevin Owens isn't going to do that why Sammy and Jay had their own unique thing going on. So it's a great way to come back to that. That said, it can't be the only Jay storyline. It can't just be the good guys don't trust him. Eventually, it will have to be something more. And what that is, we're not quite there yet. And that's exactly why the Jimmy storyline on SmackDown is so boring and slow moving. And again, he just doesn't have the charisma to pull off doing it on his own. Whereas Jay on Raw, it's not that dissimilar of a story, but he's working with more charismatic people. There's more of a storyline there because Jay has already 
been and always been, I should say, a bigger piece of the bloodline than Jimmy ever was. And whereas Jay is massively entertaining on Raw, you have Jimmy, again, just kind of existing on SmackDown, where Roman Reigns is the draw over there. Jay has been able to stand on his own. He's been built up to stand on his own. Jimmy has not. So I think it explains a lot of what's happening on both shows. And now I'm very curious to watch this going forward on both brands and see if what we just talked about actually pays off. I would hate it if I'm reading into something that isn't there. But I think normally on this podcast, when we kind of dive into something like this, it generally plays out in the end. So that was why I wanted to put all of this together in the main event segment today. One other interesting note, for me at least, before we move on, nearly everyone on Raw of significance is involved in the Jey Uso storyline. Sami Zayn, Kevin Owens, Cody Rhodes, Drew McIntyre, all of Judgment Day. It feels like a build one might do for a Survivor Series match or a War Games match, but that's 74 days away. They can't do this for another two and a half months, different combinations of people, right? Well, and there's something else which we'll get to with what happened on SmackDown uh, in terms of factions and Mm -hmm. whatnot. So I don't know. Like I said, I don't know what Jay does from here. I don't know what Cody's doing from here. I don't really know what anybody is. So we just kind of got to wait and see. And to that other point, all the people who feuded with, who have feuded with Roman Reigns are on Raw. So like Jay has a lot of people to play off of there. Mm -hmm. Jimmy doesn't, especially when Roman isn't there. Yeah, it's a great point. Let's go ahead and move to the second major segment on today's show. You know it, you love it. It is the good, the bad, and the ugly. And I'm sorry, Miss Rosie Perez, I call a spade a spade. It just is what it is. But you can't give credit to anything dude says. Same dude to give you ice and you own some... Shorty. It's time to wake up the dead. You sound a little naive in them articles that I read. All right, so Shinsuke Nakamura got another promo package, this time with a samurai sword. He said Seth Rollins is not honorable and shouldn't feel like a champion. Nakamura also called him a manipulator, a deceiver, a liar, and someone who brings shame to his family and has no remorse. Shinsuke promised to take the title and expose all of his lies. Uh, Nakamura then promised to challenge him when he feels like it. Another home run from Shinsuke and WWE's production, as far as I was concerned. Rollins then opened our three. He looked like that dude from Monsters, Inc. I haven't seen the movie in like 20 years, but whatever the character is with the fuzzy green, you know, coat, uh, that's what he looked like. Uh, Rollins admitted that what Shinsuke said was true. He's like, yeah, and I am a piece of shit. (laughs) So what? But he also said, I'm a fighter, a father, and a champion. Rollins talked about trying out the shield, the authority, being an ultra babyface, and then becoming the Messiah. He said none of it worked until now because he figured out what the fans actually wanted, and that was for him to be himself. Rollins said management wants him to slow down, but he wants to fight because he was born to be a workhorse. Then he dared Nakamura to answer his challenge right there. So Shinsuke's music hit, but he didn't come out. A fun moment was Rollins looking around immediately, knowing he might sneak attack. Instead, Nakamura was shown beating up Ricochet backstage. Nakamura said he would fight, but he thought Rollins wasn't medically cleared, so he didn't prepare, and he took out Ricochet instead. Then he kept beating on him and promised to take his title another night. All of this worked for me. There's not much analysis to give, but it was a fine continuation of the feud. It hit all the salient points as they have been really throughout every single week. There's still a long way to go until Fastlane, and this was totally fine for an in-between week, so I thought it was good. 
Yeah, it, it was fine. It was a light good, but t- two things just kind of stuck out to me. One, why does Seth Rollins care if Ricochet's getting beat up? I don't even know the last time the two of them interacted. He it's doesn't. It's like it's Seth Rollins' he friend. Did, back wait, wait, hold on. He didn't care. Uh, he didn't care. He didn't, he didn't help him. He just stood there. Right. Yeah. Right. It, so, poor Ricochet. Uh, <laughs> and, and two, and two, I, I, you gotta, we, we gotta drop the crazy outfits for Seth. Like, I can't, it's too much of a contrast between right. goofy jackets and sunglasses and I'm here fighting for my family and my daughter and blah, blah, blah. Like, I can't take you seriously, man, when, yeah. when you're dressed like that. It's, you got the song, the song's over. I just, like, it feels like two wildly different characters that are trying to work together. The guy who does the laugh and the the, the, the goofy outfits. And then you got to take me seriously because of my back injury and my family. And it's like, I can't, I can't buy that, man. Like we got to do one or the other. I've been out on outlandish Seth for a long time. As listeners know, I'm ready to go back to, I'm ready to transition into a, another kind of Seth Rollins here. And it feels like he's been, feels like he's in an in-between stage right now. And it's just, it's not quite clicking for me. But that said, again, everything in this was fine. It was a light good, uh, not much else to it. There were a few weeks where he was still dressing a little outlandish and stylish, but not freaky. And I think that worked. So the goal really should be, and and this is a great point you're making. They need to tone it down like 50%, maybe 60 or 70%. It's not saying he can't be colorful. It's not saying he can't wear stylish gear and look good and look different and look cool. But he doesn't need to be wearing crazy glasses and a huge jacket. You know, just just tone it down and be different and keep the moniker freaking Rollins and, and all that other stuff. But be less of a joke. Uh, you're world champion. The yep. title looks great on him. You're doing a serious storyline with Shinsuke Nakamura. Why are you wearing huge green and black glasses and a, and a fuzzy Monsters, Inc. jacket? It It's totally unnecessary. It doesn't help. In fact, it takes away. So that's a really good point by you. Uh, Women's World Championship, Rhea Ripley defended against Raquel Rodriguez. Raquel backstage put over Rhea's raw strength, but says she's unafraid. Dom won't be there to help Ripley, and Ripley will finally get a taste of her own medicine. She also said, quote, I'm not like most people, which sounded odd in the moment. And yeah, Uh, Rodriguez ate snake eyes off of Ripley's shoulders. Raquel then gave her a taste of her own medicine with the same move. Ripley hit a great Northern Light suplex. Raquel stopped Riptide and then hit a regular snake eyes and a back body drop plus a running boot. Rhea came back with, I think, the first time ever she did a frog splash with the Eddie Guerrero tribute. Rodriguez caught Ripley trying a cannonball off the apron and straight up swung her into the announce table. Then she hit a Tahana bomb on the ring apron. And you're like, holy shit, they might put her over here. Suddenly, Nia Jax returns out of the crowd hits a Samoan drop on Rodriguez at ringside. Rhea then caught Raquel with the pump knee and Riptide to retain the title in 16 minutes. Then after the bell, Jax went into the ring, went right up to Ripley, headbutted her, uh, put her head over the bottom rope, hit a leg drop on the apron, and then a bonsai drop in the corner before slapping Ripley in the face. I got to admit the slaps were kind of funny at the end. But let me give you a quick summation of this match. Well, that was a great matchup, but the ending sucked. Uh, the match was awesome. Let's start with the match itself. 10 times better than what we got at Payback. 
This was how Ripley and Rodriguez went at it in NXT. A straight, hard-hitting banger with both of them looking incredibly tough and dominant in the ring. Could not have been a better showcase for these two. Undoubtedly good work in the ring. It probably would have been around four stars A- minus eventually if it had gone a little bit longer and got a clean finish. So quickly, Chris, talk about the match, and then we'll go on from there. Really good match. Exactly what I wanted out of these two. There's there's so few times that Rhea matches up with someone who matches her just physically. Mm -hmm. And when she does, that gets emphasized more than if she works with a little person. Raquel Rodriguez catching her (laughs) jumping off the side of the ring before slamming her into the table. That was an insane spot. Yeah, that was wild. Credit to both of them for that. So this was uh, really physical, really enjoyed it. Big meaty women slapping meat. And that was before we got to the finish. <laughs> Big meaty men slapping meat. <laughs> I mean, let's just be candid about it. There was a lot of beef flying out there. <laughs> Reinforce the ring post. The beef's going to be flying tonight, gentlemen. Now, in terms of Nia Jax's return. I mean, that's how I felt. Fucking why? You should have heard the audible noise that I made when I saw this happen. I have a phrase I say a lot in my personal life. Decisions are made every day. In other words, people do stupid shit all the time. And look, maybe I get proven wrong down the road. That would be fantastic. But what we know about Nia Jax is she is an awful, unsafe worker. She doesn't care about her coworkers' health. She's not a good promo. She doesn't have a fan base. There's absolutely no one who is pining away for her return to the ring. She also never showed any passion for the business. If she did, you would think she would have been wrestling somewhere over the last two years that she's been completely out of WWE. So I just do not get this at all. I'm completely flabbergasted by the decision-making. The only bright spot is they didn't have her show up on SmackDown and beat up EO Sky right away. That's literally the lone positive I can conjure up here because I can't understand her being re-signed as part of this company by any stretch of the imagination. I'm, I, I, I'm conflicted on this because one, in the context of what had happened, mm-hmm. in the context of seeing Nia Jax or Cal Rodriguez and Rhea Ripley out there, all I could think was, there's a lot of beef out there. There's a lot of beef out here. And as mu- everything I liked about Rhea, Raquel, just the physicalness, the the meat slapping and all that kind of stuff, uh, it, it goes up a notch with, with Nia Jax. Okay. She has had bright spots in her career. The Alexa Bliss WrestleMania feud was, was really good stuff. But everything you said about safety, skill, love for the business doesn't appear to be there. And as I've said many times on this show, you want what Nia Jax gives you? Piper Niven does that a lot better, a lot safer, and a lot more interesting. Yes. She is everything you want out of Nia Jax. 
And Piper Nevin came back, and we'll get into that. But I just thought, like, I don't know if there's much juice there left to kind of get out of this. And I just hope Rhea Ripley doesn't get injured in whatever comes next. And that's not to say, to clarify your point, it's not to say that Nia Jax and Piper Niven are the same you know, type of character. It's not to say that you can't have two larger women on the same show or in the same company or any of that. It's just, Correct. if you wanted someone to fill the role that Nia seems to be filling here, Piper Niven is better than her in basically every single way. So why would you use Nia and bring her back instead of just using Piper? But you know what also sucked about Nia's return? It completely overshadowed a great moment for Raquel. Even if she was going to lose to Rhea, this match was on the way to making her legitimate. Think about what we've been talking about the last couple of weeks, how they've been trying to build up uh, Raquel Rodriguez, but they haven't given her a chance to show it in the ring. They haven't given her a chance on the mic to explain to people why they should like her. They did that on Raw Monday night. It was just like with Tommaso Ciampa. I mentioned this a few weeks ago. Like They were in the process of building up Raquel Rodriguez, and you could see it. You could see, okay, she's going to lose, but fans are really going to get behind her now because she took Rhea Ripley all the way to her limit. And then you have Nia Jax. And it's just like the entire storyline coming out of Raw is not Jay or Drew or Raquel. It's Nia. Now, I do understand your point that, look, her feuding with Rhea and Raquel through the end of the year, it could help make both of them look good if they both beat her individually. But I don't see how Triple H could have thought that was the way fans wanted Raw to end. I'm just dumbfounded by that. Imagine being a Bills fan and watching Nia Jax return and then changing your audio. Let's say you have two TVs and then you're watching Overtime and Bills Jets. The succession of those two events, that could lead people to just like throwing their TVs out the window. I wouldn't I wouldn't guess. Bless you all if you're a Bills fan and a WWE fan and you saw those two things happen back to back. So we don't need to like rant on it much yeah. more. And the proof is, the, the other thing is this, the proof is in the pudding, right? So if Nia Jax six weeks from now has three matches and she looks really good and safe in them and people backstage are happy she's back and the TV is compelling, great. I would love to be proven wrong here. It's just, we've seen her for a long time and we've seen her wrestle and cut promos for a long time. It doesn't work and largely she's not safe. And I don't think she was needed on Raw. Again, they had Piper Niven, different type of person, but could have accomplished much of what Nia is doing. My, ultimately, what you want to get out of this is two things. You need to find a way that Raquel Rodriguez delivers a Tahana bomb to Nia Jax in what looks like an incredible feat of strength. And the same thing with the Riptide. You're going to have to get her up and you're going to have to get that slam down, and you're going to have to create this iconic image, just like they did with Bianca and Piper uh, when they do uh, Bianca's finisher. So mm -hmm. that's ultimately what you're trying to get out of this, and I think you you you, you can do that. Um, but, oh, oh, yeah, the other thing I was going to say, Raquel, you're right. This was the most interesting Raquel looked like in a long time because she looked physically imposing and right. kept up with Rhea Ripley. And it was overshadowed. That is something she's needed. And, and you're right. It was completely overshadowed. The other part about Raquel, her entrance, her 
can, can we stop with the back pose? <laughs> we gotta stop with the back pose. It does nothing. For one, it's not that impressive. It's I not don't impressive. even know what I'm supposed to be looking at. Yeah. I'm not, I'm not, I'm confused at the shoulder blades and what the muscles are. And I'm like, is that impressive? I don't know. I don't think I'm it is. Back muscles. <laughs> and, and it keeps her face out of it. Yeah. Like, so like her, her, like my big pose, this is recovered release. You don't even see her face. It's like, I don't understand get away from that. If we want to connect with Raquel Rodriguez as a character, which they have done a very poor job booking toward that. Uh, you gotta go, you gotta change that whole thing up. I did. That is not connecting at all and it will not help her. Yeah. You said it. All right, let's keep going here. Uh, Tiffany Stratton was backstage at raw complaining to Adam Pierce. Becky Lynch walked in to sign the contract for their NXT title match. Tiffy asked why Becky had a problem with her. Lynch said Stratton has been showing up on Raw because her title reign has been a dead end, truth. And she may be athletic and built like a goddess, but she's dumb as a box of rocks and is not good enough to stand up to Becky. Becky also promised to do what Tiffy wants most, which is make her famous. Stratton then said she would make her name at Lynch's expense. This was actually a short but great uh, confrontation backstage. Solid build and a good way to remind viewers about NXT. Now, I do wish it was in front of the crowd, but anyone who watches NXT knows Stratton really struggles on the mic in the ring, so I understand why they did it this way. It just was weird, again, to get Cody Rhodes for four minutes, not get Becky in the ring doing anything. Um, Seth Rollins was only there briefly. You want to put your best foot forward. I didn't feel like they did that in the entire show, but for this segment, I thought it was an easy good, and Stratton, third week in a row, she's cut a really strong promo, and again, this is something that she's been struggling with in NXT. Yeah, definite good. I, I I know of her struggles on the mic, and she did great in this. And she has the last couple of weeks. I, I'm fine with not putting this in front of the crowd because it's for an NXT match, and that's going to take time doing entrances, whatever. This is a quick way to get through it. And to remind you to watch NXT, which mm-hmm. I have to imagine ratings will be up uh, tremendously for that. So, uh, yeah, this was good stuff. Great, great stuff. So Gunther and Imperium stepped out of a limo looking dapper as hell in tuxedos. Gunther entered on his own after them to a huge Ludwig Kaiser introduction. He stood on a podium between two columns. He got pyro in the ring. Gunther got sparse cheers as he put himself over as the greatest, saying those that came before him as intercontinental champion contributed nothing. Chad Gable interrupted. He told Gunther to his face that he knows Gable pushed him to his limit. He talked about his daughter crying her eyes out and that lighting a fire inside of him. Gable guaranteed he would beat Gunther again, this time for the title, no matter when or how he gets the opportunity. Gunther accused Gable of using his daughter as bait to stay in the spotlight, calling him a disgusting, terrible father. Gable attacked and Imperium easily dominated him. Otis saved, but only briefly before he got beat up. Then Tommaso Ciampa ran down with a chair. He cleared the ring. Ciampa later said that Adam Pierce told him last week to seize the moment and Otis suggested a six-man later in the show. So we got Alpha Academy and Champa against Imperium. This was largely what you would expect given the dynamics of the teams, but I will tell you, the finish was exceptional. Otis hit a caterpillar, then ran himself into the ring post through the turnbuckles. Gunther and Gable tagged. Gunther tossed Chad to Mars on a German suplex. Gable came back with Chaos Theory on Giovanni Vinci. That was for a broken fall. Champa saved Gable from a powerbomb. Then there was Chaos outside. Then... Gable got Vinci in an ankle lock. He fell down on it in a grapevine and Champa caught Gunther running into the ring to break it up, put him in the Sicilian stretch. Vinci taps out 
and Gunther has no choice but to watch him tap out while Ciampa like angled his face right towards uh, Gable and Vinci. The Sicilian stretch, by the way, is the Gargano escape. Another tease, the crowd went nuts for this finish. 3.75 stars, B+. Three things I liked immensely. Number one, Gunther looking like an absolute stud in that tux. That is what a champion looks like, folks. Two, Gunther calling it the Intercontinental Heavyweight Championship. That is the real name of the title, and it wasn't used for a long time. He's been saying it consistently. Number three, Gable not demanding a rematch immediately, but talking about eventually earning the chance somehow. Now that said, it kind of seems like Gunther may give it to him soon. That would be unfortunate because I much prefer the idea of Gable earning it and working really hard to get another number one contendership before toppling Gunther. But even so, Gable not talking about it that way, saying he would do the work necessary to earn it, that was refreshing. Then beyond those positives, holy shit did this match exceed my expectations. It started slow, but once Gunther and Gable tagged in, it picked up massively, the finish was outstanding, and hopefully WWE is smart enough to use Champa's success against Gunther to give him a title match that would help delay Gable even further. It would give Gunther a number, another win. I still feel like we're going to get Gunther Gable at Fastlane, but it would be much better to push it all the way out to Survivor Series. I really don't like the idea of Gunther dropping the title a month after breaking the record. Give him, you know, a decent length of time with it, with the record before we see that happen. But we'll see. I'm all in for Gable winning. And as you can tell, the segment initially, the celebration, the match, both extremely, extremely good. Yeah, absolute good across the board. Gable's promo was a follow-up from the social media promo he cut after the match last week in the locker room as he was kind of taking off his boots. And he says in this one, just like, I swear to God, I'm going to get that title from you. And when a babyface says that, yes, they have to do it. Mm -hmm. So he's going to do it mm -hmm. at some point. And you're right. I, I like that he didn't just demand it, didn't just get it. Build toward that a bit more. Uh, wearing the tuxedos and all that stuff was great. At the podium that Gunther was standing on, all I could think of, it was it was when they did the Rusev Day promo and he got like the key to the Bulgaria or whatever that was, that whole thing <laughs> with, um, yeah. with it, look, it was like the exact, it looked like the exact same thing he was standing on. It's all, it's all I could think about. Uh, match was terrific. Everything in this completely worked. Finish was, was great and no complaints at all. Really good. Yeah. Really good stuff. Uh, Bobby Lashley and the Street Profits all also dressed dapper, but still unnamed as a group. They confronted Judgment Day face-to-face -face on SmackDown after the bell of that match I talked about earlier against the Brawling Brutes. Lashley said the bloodline is indeed crumbling, but they are the ones taking over, not Judgment Day. Priest smirked right in Lashley's face, and the heels dipped out. It would seem to me like they would need a balance for Rhea Ripley if they feud, right? And wouldn't that be Bianca Belair? Give that to me. I love this. I love the idea of groups fighting for territory now that a power vacuum exists with the bloodline split up and Roman Reigns not there. But it was also a lot for Judgment Day to do, interacting with Bloodline, Brawling Brutes, and these guys all on one show. I'm still giving it a good, but it did come across a little bit convoluted for Judgment Day on Friday night. 
Well, I, I was kind of surprised we didn't have this higher on the rundown. Mm-hmm. Uh, all I could think about and all anybody could talk about after this was faction warfare. Like, we have to be getting that, right? A, a, a three on three on three, most likely. Uh, maybe it's at War Games. Maybe it's at Fastlane because of how far out Survivor Series is. Um, I don't know when, but all I could think about was like, we're doing faction warfare and this came again right after Rhea Ripley said we're the most dominant faction in WWE. It's just tough. It's just tough because so judgment day is technically three guys and a woman. They could add McDonough and get four guys. Bloodline at its maximum is three guys. That's assuming Jimmy's there. No woman. Uh, the Mm -hmm. OC you have three guys and a woman. Um, Bobby Lashley street profits, three guys. They could add Bianca Belair and have three guys and a woman. So mm-hmm. the bloodline is actually the one that doesn't fit into this. Brawling Brutes, three dudes, no one else. Maybe they could add like Nikki Cross or something and get there as well. So there is the potential mm-hmm. to do that, but there's really only like right when you look at it right now, there's only one faction and that's the Judgment Day. Everything else are groups. And I know, you know, to some people, they're all the same thing. To me, they're not. So might there be yeah. some, you know, a, a, a triple threat of trios? or a fatal four-way of trios, that's possible. Maybe that's what they're building for Survivor Series. But there's so many different machinations it can take, Chris, that I don't know what we're getting for Survivor Series, if there's going to be a traditional match or matches, if there's going to be war games. And again, it's still 74 days away. So I'm glad that they're, you know, dripping a little bit of storyline into that. But it just seems like it's a really long way off to start building for that. That, that was the only thing is that it feels a long way off. So maybe in the meantime, some of them are going at each other for a month before we get there. But I don't think you do that face off and you don't have these teams interact the way they did. Like you said, why is Judgment Day helping Bloodline? Like it feels like we have to be getting to faction warfare in some form, either a four versus four versus four or three versus three versus three versus three. Sorry, four teams involved. And if that's in a cage or something else, I I don't know. But that has to be the plan for Survivor Series. I I have to imagine that is the thought process right now. Something like that definitely makes sense. But we're definitely going to need to see how it all plays out. Uh, Charlotte Flair and Shotzi fought damage control. This open SmackDown. Michael Cole commented about EO having a chip on her shoulder being overlooked because of Rhea Ripley. Charlotte got the hot tag. EO broke a figure four leg lock with a Meteora. Then she had a hurricanrana with Bailey distracted on the top rope by Asuka, who appeared in the timekeeper's area and stole the women's title from Dakota Kai, who was just holding it. Flair booted Bailey and EO with Shotzi catching Bailey with a leg hook DDT for the win in nine minutes. EO confronted Asuka after the bell, so she dropped the title between them and taunted her before leaving. Damage control were furious backstage, with EO not only ready for Asuka, but ready to defend the title. So positives. Shotzi getting the win, even if it felt like Charlotte kind of did all the hard work and then did her a favor by tagging her in, almost like a little sister. But that, Asuka returning with some damn cool and spooky white contacts, plus she confronted EO, meaning the program is with her and not Charlotte, as we were concerned about last week. Negatives. Match was mediocre. Half of it was during the commercial break. Plus, I'm not sure anyone actually benefited from the win, even though Shotzi did get the W. Also concerning. This title change is happening immediately. This is a premium live event match, not a TV match. Io, Sky, and Asuka needs to be on a big stage. So hopefully the bout that we get in two weeks 
as interference or a DQ or something because I want them on a premium live event. If you're not putting them on SummerSlam or Crown Jewel or Survivor Series, fine. But there's no excuse for not doing EO Sky and Asuka at Fastlane, especially after Cole called out how EO was not on payback and had a chip on her shoulder. So I'm gonna give this a provisional good because there was a lot here that was positive and I'm just hoping they didn't rush an Asuka challenge. That way Charlotte can get the title at Fastlane. That's what I initially feared and that's not out of the realm of possibility yet. So until it is, I'm not gonna say it's straight good, so it's provisional. I'm giving this a bad just because I didn't really... None of it really clicked for me. Like you said, it feels like Charlotte is playing big sister to Shotzi, and I don't think it's helping Shotzi. Um, as for Asuka EO, look, the the weird conversation part of this is how much does WWE trust two Japanese women who don't speak great English mm-hmm. to carry a big feud between them? I don't know. You could do the Shinsuke Nakamura thing where they're talking via subtitles, and I think that would work great. I, I, I think this should be a great match. I think it's very possible, like you said, we get some interference only to get a bigger match at Fastlane. I don't think Charlotte's getting involved in the title, but um, look, EO versus Asuka makes sense based on what happened at SummerSlam. So how they handle that is interesting. But this segment was a bit all over the place, big commercial break. A match that was really about something else. I I, I gave it a, a light bad. Okay. Uh, unrelated to this, just something I wanted to point out before we move on. Alba Fire and Isla Dawn have not been on TV in three months. Mia Yim is on TV every week with the OC, but she basically never does anything. Zelina Vega did have her title match a couple weeks ago, but that was it. And again, Shotzi should have been teaming with Zelina, not Charlotte. But in lieu of that, how about Zelina and Mi Chin? How about giving these women singles matches? or backstage storylines, or anything. Alba is an incredible wrestler in particular. It does not make any sense to me at all that Alba Fire and Isla Dawn, not to mention the KCs over on Raw, Katana Chance and Caden Carter, are just not on television. And they're creating new women's tag teams that have nothing to do with the women's tag teams that actually exist. This despite there having been a title change. So immensely frustrated, I just wanted to mention that. We'll move on. LA Knight fought Austin Theory on SmackDown, another insane pop for Knight. He talked shit about The Miz, said he respects John Cena, but didn't need his endorsement. He also clowned Kevin Nash in an old school reference. How's that song of his go? I came to play, right? Now, if I was a complete moron, I'd say, let's look at that adjective. But I'm not a moron, so I'm gonna say, let's look at that verb, play. I didn't come here to play, Miz. This is where the big boys play, huh? Look at the adjective, play. We ain't here to play. Great stuff. Uh, the quick backstory, Nash called Knight a ripoff of Steve Austin and The Rock. Then he apologized, admitting he hadn't really seen that much of him because he only watches Raw, not SmackDown. But look, LA got one in here. So congratulations to him. And, yeah, and... There was that one reference from the LA Knight promo where he says people are using LA Knight for views and clicks. Right. And we wondered that that was right after the Kevin Nash comments. And we wondered then if that was a click reference to Kevin Nash and his podcast and everything. Don't know for sure, but this makes me more think that it probably was. Congratulations to me. Uh, Knight went on to accept the rematch challenge 
when Theory and Grayson Waller interrupted, calling themselves an undefeated 1-0 tag team. Theory talked about already beating Cena at night. There was also a weird mix of like piped in booze and real booze that came from the crowd. Then Knight talked shit and it ended. So Waller was on commentary and he removed the turnbuckle pad while they were fighting outside. Knight had all his signatures. Theory avoided the exposed turnbuckle, but he was caught trying to avoid it with the BFT for the one, two, three. Weak ass promo battle besides the one line I mentioned. Knight easily won, but he didn't really say anything that was that unique or inventive. Again, other than that one line, ultimately, Knight got another win to continue his momentum, uh, and we got further development in the Theory Waller team. Those are positives. So the booking was good, but it just didn't feel like an overly consequential segment, at least to me. Yeah, it was just, here's LA Knight, let him do his thing. He gets a win, which is always important. Mm -hmm. He beats Austin Theory, which is a notable win. So like, I I think that all totally worked. I've said it before, but Elliot having real feuds to kind of sink his teeth into is making that crowd reaction just stronger. Mm-hmm. Like there's just a, there's more of a connection. There's more of an oomph when that music hits and that crowd reacts and uh, continues to be really good stuff. Speaking about real feuds and storylines for LA Knight. So later backstage, Knight interrupted Heyman, who was talking to Pierce, demanding a rematch against the Miz. Knight was uh, Pierce made that official for this coming week. Heyman introduced himself saying he's a big fan, but he cautioned Knight not to interrupt one of his meetings again. Really fun and quick back and forth between them. I could definitely see them setting up like a title match at Survivor Series or the Royal Rumble or something like that. This definitely planted seeds between them. It was interesting to see Heyman be aggressive and not back down like he normally does. And just seeing Paul and LA face to face was really cool. I love this. This was awesome. This was Paul Hammond like, all right, this guy is getting a lot of attention now. Let's let's have our own little face to face here. And like you said, I love that Paul didn't just squirm and back down. Yeah, like he did. He did pull up to him as well. And L.A. Knight didn't back down either. Like that just is like, oh, I want to see that again next time. Nobody got the upper hand on anybody. They're both kind of threatening each other a little bit at some point it's going to come back around and it's going to be incredible. So I loved this one other LNA thing. I forgot to note that I, that I wrote down when Grayson Waller was out there, he called him La Knight. And I, I, laughed at that. <laughs> I didn't hear that. Funny. That's funny. Yeah, that is funny. Uh, by the way, we didn't grade this technically, but it's good clearly from both of us. Uh, Akira Tozawa fought the Miz on raw. There was a decent draping style code breaker by Miz plus three skull crushing finales for the squash in three minutes. This was for Miz to get a win back before Friday's match with LA Knight. I get that. It was completely unnecessary without there being a promo to promote the match before or after it. And it was incredibly boring coming out of a really hot start to Raw. This was like the second major segment after the Jey Uso, Kevin Owens, Judgment Day thing. It didn't make any sense why they did it. And it was just straight up bad. Yep, it was bad. Nothing to it. Last week, I said the Miz cutting a promo on an empty chair was a Hall of Fame type of, of segment. This was was nothing bad. Yeah, them following up last week with this. I mean, <laughs> they could have had Miz on commentary for a match with an empty chair next to him and done the whole John Cena thing again if they wanted to. Really, I would have just kept them off the show entirely. This just did not need to happen. Uh, Drew McIntyre and Xavier Woods got into it backstage over McIntyre talking shit about Kofi Kingston. McIntyre made some snide comments saying Kingston could be a man and deal with it himself, but Woods pulled him back, talking about how Kofi won his WWE championship 
in front of thousands of screaming fans, while McIntyre got his in the performance center in front of no one. Obviously, that pissed off Drew. It got super contentious from there. They went face to face. McIntyre said he didn't want to hurt Woods, but he would if he wanted to. And Xavier did. So that led to a match. So we got Xavier Woods against Drew McIntyre. Drew straight chucked Xavier over the announce table. Woods came back with a flying leg drop. He countered Claymore with a super kick and hit a senton and half a shining wizard. The finish was sudden, but it was pretty exciting. They dodged each other off the ropes. Woods got turned around, sliding underneath McIntyre's legs, and Drew capitalized with the Claymore to get the win. 3.75 stars, B+, a lot of fun. And it's exactly what I talk about in terms of getting wrestlers clean wins without them being completely dominant and making the other guy look bad. Plus, it moved the storyline forward without Matt Riddle or Kofi in attendance. I also love how Woods, he always goes for the jugular and spits facts whenever he argues with anyone. It was a low blow with the WrestleMania note, but it was straight facts. And this version of McIntyre that we're getting that's developing, far more interesting than the pure baby face that we've gotten for most of the last couple of years. This was definitely good. Oh, this was great. I loved this. I love so many aspects. It's to the point of Xavier Woods spitting facts, getting uh, getting upset uh, over what Drew McIntyre getting upset over that notion and not being just a baby face, like baby faces that just kind of get mad at each other and like, all right, we're going to have to do this. We're going to have a fight. And and it, it, was, it was great. Good match. Most notable part of this to me, to your point about having a match, guy getting a clean win and everybody looking better for it. Match ends. McIntyre immediately is like breathing heavily, exhaling. And he's like, has this surprised look on his face that he didn't think it was going to take that much effort to beat Xavier Woods. And it did. And he should beat Xavier Woods. That's fine. But Xavier put up a bigger fight than he expected. And he expressed that on his face afterward. I thought that was a really, really good little thing from McIntyre there. Also, commentary throughout this match kept saying, you know, Drew McIntyre carried this company through COVID. That was a really dark time, and, like, he mm-hmm. deserves credit for that. And he does. And so I'm he glad does, that yeah. they said that and didn't just didn't just let Xavier Woods get away with the jokes of, like, he won in front of nobody. Commentary adding context of, like, yeah, but, like, that was a big deal. That was really good, too. Great point about the way Drew kind of looked at Xavier at the end of this. And and again, just the 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 match was so damn good and the backstage segment was so damn good. I think you're right. I kind of underplayed it. This wasn't just good. This was top three items on Raw Monday night. It, it may have been top three yeah. items in WWE this entire week, actually. Yeah, it was like a little thing, but there was a lot of meat on it. There was. And both of the guys, everybody involved did a good job. By the way, Nick Aldis, the former NWA World Heavyweight Champion, he's working in WWE as a producer, not full-time yet, but he was the producer on this match and got rave reviews for it. So that's one of the reasons it went over so well and probably why so many people are, are talking about it and excited about it. Now, in terms of Riddle that I mentioned and in terms of him not being at Raw on Monday night, he was kept off the show this week after an incident at JFK Airport with security or a TSA agent you can read about it in detail online. I usually don't point to TMZ, but TMZ actually has a great write-up about it, so I would suggest reading that. It's too convoluted to get into in great detail, but basically, Riddle felt as if he was physically assaulted and apparently something he was inebriated causing a scene. 
WWE is terming the absence a medical illness, according to PW Insider. Suffice to say, Riddle was pulled off Raw. He was pulled off this weekend's house shows. It's fair to consider his spot in WWE tenuous. This is another public issue with him. It's unfortunate, Chris. This is a guy who legitimately had a super high ceiling just a year ago. And at one point in NXT, I was saying he's a future WWE champion. He just seems to be his own worst enemy and he can't get out of his own way. To do this right before the merger is is completed as well. Ridiculous. Like he, again, you can read all the details elsewhere. We don't need to get all the, but he, he brought this up. He posted it on Instagram and made all these claims. And, and it's not like he was responding to something and, for, and to make sexual assault allegations for a guy who himself has had sexual assault lawsuits filed right. against him that were dropped, no official charges made, like just complete poor judgment in all of this. And I, we'll see what happens, but WWE certainly cannot be happy with, with all of that. And we'll see. Yeah, definitely not. And lastly here, Shayna Baszler fought Chelsea Green. Shayna put over Zoe Stark as surprising her last week in a backstage interview. Chelsea interrupted looking for another partner with Piper Niven, still not medically cleared. Chelsea called them peers. Shayna took exception to that. So she wanted to wrestle her to prove that they're not peers. Then Piper appeared, ripped her title off of Chelsea's shoulder and said, medically cleared. Uh, Piper protected Chelsea at points during the match. Baszler shoved her out of the way once. Shayna countered Unpretty Her into Exterminus, I believe is what they're calling it, for the win in two minutes. That's the new name for Ronda Rousey's Piper's Pit move that Baszler is doing, even though it wasn't that great of a move in the first place. Uh, She brawled with Piper until Zoe made the save and backed Niven down in the ring. The backstage segment was fine. The match and post-match for me were bad. I appreciate the building of a new women's tag team. Do not get me wrong. But it could not have been less exciting or entertaining the way they did it. Better would have been Shayna and Piper fighting to like a DQ or something before doing the same post-match. I'm happy they were all on TV. I'm happy that a lot of women were in the second half of Raw on Monday night. I just thought it could have been way, way better. I really like this. I I like this whole thing. I love the Piper-Chelsea connection where Chelsea's going to talk the big game and get her ass kicked and Piper's going to be there begrudgingly to have her back and literally carry her to the back and stuff like that. I, I, I'm glad Piper's medically cleared. When Chelsea was looking for another partner, I was like, oh God, this is happening again. We, you know, we were concerned about it. Um, and Piper just coming in and saying medically cleared. <laughs> I don't like you, but I'm here. I want a championship. I love this man. Like, yeah. I know it's, 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 it's low card stuff. It's, it's, it is what it is, but I'm really, really liking the two of them together. And I'm looking forward to more of it uh, each week. Well, like I said, I enjoyed the backstage. I just didn't like anything that happened afterward in the ring. I mean, you know, again, it just give them more time. Let them actually wrestle. It's, it's the same stuff every single week. Shayna should beat Chelsea Green fairly easily. And it obviously was meant to set up a tag team feud. So, like, I'm fine with that in the context of what it's setting up. I, in this case, I was fine with that. That's true. But it's two weeks in a row that Chelsea's gotten squashed. And she is one half of the champions. I'm not saying she needs to win. But she shouldn't look pathetic. She should look like no. she has something. And and don't forget, with Sonya, Chelsea's the one who, I think, won the titles and finished those matches with her finisher. And now she's just getting squashed in two minutes to anyone she faces. Like, I don't know. It just, give them, again, there's a difference between a six-minute match that Chelsea loses and a two-minute match where she gets thrown around like a rag doll. That's what I'm trying to say. Just 
Give him a little last bit. Week, last week was a bigger problem. Last week was a bigger problem. Last week was a bigger problem. Yes, that's fair. All right. That is the end of the good, the bad, and the ugly. So let's wrap up the show with the last word. So DJ, take the needle and just drop it on the record. What? We gon' have this poppin' in a second. That's why we always save the best cut last to make the scratch and mix for it like fresh cut grass. So Ben at MattRat103 writes in. He said, you guys have talked about how when Roman Reigns turns babyface again, the response is going to be tremendous. The question is, which other established heels do you think might also get a massive response if and when they eventually turn babyface? Bailey is the one that sticks out to me most, but I'd love to hear your guys' thoughts. This is a good question. Uh, Rhea Ripley is going to be insanely over when she goes full babyface. She's getting cheered now as a heel. Uh, if they turn Drew McIntyre heel, which it seems like they're about to do, when he turns back babyface, that's going to be massive. Bailey's a good shout. I wonder to some degree how much fans still care about her. They would really need a big time heel to help her become babyface. It's nothing against her. It just, again, it would require the right storyline. And then another one, and this is kind of cheating a little bit, but Brock Lesnar technically left as a heel. If he comes back and turns babyface, we saw what happened last time. He would be massively over. So those are my four names, two women, uh, two men. But, you know, right now, it's there's not that many. I mean, Balor would be a quick turn. He would be cheered again. Damien Priest would get cheered. But you're talking about, like, massively over. Those are the names that stick out the most to me. Well, Frick, you took you took about every name there was. So there's, there's not much. <laughs> I only there's said four. I said two women pick. and two men. My, I said four people. My, 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 my first thought was Rhea Ripley. For all the reasons, like she already is getting cheered, so you make her face, it'll it'll be huge. And Finn Balor was the other one I thought as well. Outside of that, there weren't a ton of like heels to turn face, like like Jimmy Uso. Like I, I guess if he's a heel now, if he comes to save Jay at some point, it might work. That would be one. But like solo turning face, I don't think will do anything unless it's in the context of like turning on Roman Reigns. In which case, but it's about the person know, becoming massively over. Like Roman Reigns is going to be a right. super mega babyface when he turns. Sokoa is not right. Going to be I don't think. So. Yeah. No. No. Correct. So. So those are the, those are the ones that come to mind. Like I don't think it would be the case for Damian Priest or right. Miz or Dominic or like there's just there's not really yeah. anybody else to clicks. And to your point about Bailey, like I do want it. She hasn't been. It's been so long since she has been a face that I do wonder if that connection is still there mm -hmm. when it happens. So we'll see. But Rhea Ripley, she's I think the is, answer. Yes. The clear yeah. number one. Yeah. Rhea Ripley is the clear answer. And if they did successfully turn Bianca Belair heel and then switched her back to babyface, that would be an answer as well. But I think it's Rhea Ripley, Rhea Ripley and Roman Reigns. Um, if and when they pull that off, it's going to be massive for both of them. Uh, they will be the top baby faces in the company as soon as it's done. And, uh, you know, even competing with the likes of Cody Rhodes, who obviously is mega over right now. But uh, yeah, so there you go. That is the last word for this week. We do have a couple of last words in the bank, but continue to send them in if you guys want. You can DM us at gettingovercast on Twitter. You can email us gettingoverpod at gmail.com and we will uh, include them 
in this segment and elsewhere on the show as applicable. And folks, that is it for this edition of the Getting Over Wrestling podcast, a little bit longer episode than we have been doing previously. But of course, we had a ton to discuss with the TKO Group Holdings takeover of WWE with the conclusion of the merger with Endeavor, along with a ton, of course, from SmackDown and Raw this week. Fastlane still a ways out, so no ultimate preview coming soon, but we will be back on Thursday with our next AEW and NXT episode. Of course, Becky Lynch on NXT this week. And next Tuesday, same bat time, same bat channel, we will be back with your next WWE edition of the Getting Over Wrestling podcast. On the way out, a couple reminders first that this show is all about Defy. So don't forget to leave those five-star ratings for us on Apple Podcasts and Spotify. As you heard earlier, if you take a little extra time and leave a five-star review on Apple Podcasts, we will read it live right here on the show. Also, don't forget to follow us on Twitter at Getting Overcast for episode drops, news analysis, highlights, all of that good stuff. Plus, you can send us comments and questions that we will read on the show. You can tweet them or you can DM again at Getting Overcast. Lastly, I happen to love the number five. And I hope you do as well, because for $5 a month or 50 for the entire year, you can become an official Getting Overhead. Just visit buymeacoffee.com slash getting over. Sign up, subscribe. You get bonus audio, you get news posts, and we're looking at adding some additional elements as well. Again, buymeacoffee.com slash getting over. Thank you all for listening to this edition of the Getting Over Wrestling Podcast. For Vintage Chris Vanini, this is The Silver King, Adam Silverstein, signing off and leaving you with just three final words. Bye for now. Need.